Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is episode 68, and my guest today is Pete Mackey, who is the minor league pitching coordinator for the Minnesota Twins. And I want to have Pete on today because he's got a really interesting background, and he is a longtime coach and actually just made the leap from the college ranks into the professional ranks just a year ago. So this will be his second season with the Twins as their pitching coordinator. So I'm personally curious to learn firsthand what a pitching coordinator does. You hear the term a lot. It's a a pretty high-ranking coaching job within a major league organization, and it comes with a lot of responsibilities. So he's going to tell us a little bit today about his his up-and-coming career with the Twins, in addition to how he made it there. So his behind-the-scenes from being a player, uh, he was a, a an alumni of Franklin Marshall College in Lancaster, PA, and then went on to coach at New Haven University, and then Columbia University for eight years, and then finally at Duke University before he was uh, signed away by the Twins. So really excited to have Pete, who hails from Durham, North Carolina, uh, here on the show today. So without further ado, check out our conversation today with Pete Mackey. All right, so we're here with Pete Mackey. How are you today? And number one, thanks for being on the show. And uh, tell me about Durham. So Christmas in North Carolina is coming up, huh? Yeah, man. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, Christmas in Durham, North Carolina. We actually we got some snow last week, and it it hung around for quite a while. Uh, so it felt like Christmas for a little while. Today it's going to be about 60, and the snow is all gone. So... <laughs> back back to normal climate for this well, so part you, of the country. Uh, so you grew up um, a little bit north, correct? Yes, I grew up uh, a couple of places up north. Uh, we lived in Glens Falls, New York. Uh, lived in Bradford, PA, um, and then Connecticut as well. My last couple of years of high school um, was in Connecticut. That's where my parents still live. That's where my wife is from. Um, so, and they're Northeasterners too, they're from Massachusetts, so you could call me a Yank, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're once a Yankee, you're always a Yankee. You know, if we went back to Civil War times, I don't think anyone would agree that you could fight for the South. I mean, you're just a, you're a transplant, <laughs> you're a transplant. So, definitely a transplant, like many people in the Raleigh-Durham area are. So, I have an important question with Christmas coming up. Are you real tree yes. people, or are you fake tree people? Uh, real tree, real tree. Um, that's something. I'll dig my heels in for real tree, and pay the seventy, eighty bucks or whatever it is uh, for a real tree. Well, like heard, the smell. It's worth yeah, the smell. Pine smell is amazing. It's it's probably the number one thing I look forward to at the holidays. Besides, uh, well, <laughs> I that's it's probably like eighth on my list of things I look forward okay, to. Okay, right. I was a, gonna it's say. A, it's a good uh it's a good holiday byproduct plus i've heard statistics show santa is like 33 percent more likely to come to your house if you have a real tree so i don't okay, know okay i don't, I don't, I don't know where you got that study but i think it was columbia university <laughs> okay doesn't surprise me you're all you're alma mater so let's go back you uh so you your playing career started uh you were at franklin and marshall in lancaster pa and i spent some time in lancaster so how did you enjoy your time there it's an interesting city, uh, for sure. Yeah, I had a great time in Lancaster. It's a unique town in that it's a, it's a city, but it's in the middle of Amish country. So when you're in Lancaster, and you must say Lancaster, once you'll be exposed as an outsider. I used yeah. to call it Lanc- Lancaster. 
and that's when they know you're not from there. Like from any like any town in Massachusetts, right? Like if you say uh, Balerica, you're done. If you say Peabody, you're done for. You're exposed as an outsider. Um, but anyway, Lancaster is a cool town. Uh, I haven't been back in in many years, uh, unfortunately, just because you know whenever there's an there's been an alumni event or reunion, you know I've been on the college side coaching on the college side, and there's always a recruiting event, always uh, your own fall practices. So um, I'm hopeful I can get back there uh, soon, but. And it's been it's been a decade plus, um, <laughs> unfortunately, since I've been back. But uh, did really enjoy my time uh, at F and M uh, and in the city of Lancaster. It's a it's a cool town. And so you're now as the uh, the Twins minor league pitching coordinator. I mean, you're a big you're a big deal. Um, I'm sure as an I don't know about that. I mean, all right. But, um, you know, you've had a, a, a pretty interesting journey since there. So you went to, you were an assistant coach at University of New Haven um, after That's right, college. Yeah. And then uh, you moved on from there to be a coach at Columbia University for a long time. And then after mm -hmm. that, on to Duke. And then after a couple of seasons at Duke, you are uh, now the with the Twins. Um, so tell me a little bit about that journey, because I know I have a lot of parents and, and former coaches who, or in current coaches who listen to the podcast, and I'm always personally really interested um, at just people's journeys. So did you ever think you were going to be where you are today? And and give me a little rundown. Uh, well, to answer the last question first, like, no, I, I didn't. If you were to ask me when I was 20 years old, you know, was I going to get into coaching? I'd probably say no, actually. Um, you know, I was – I was always passionate about the game and loved the game, but a lot of people love the game. And, you know, the, the, the coach I had in college, uh, Brett Peretti was a guy who's, um, you know, different than, uh, me personality wise and style. And that was like the guy who, you know, I, I would measure myself up to as a coach and say, well, I'm not really same type of style, um, as him, does that mean I can't be a coach? You know, I don't know. I didn't know what I was, I didn't want to get into coaching right away. Um, I wanted to be involved in the game. I wanted to work for a big league club, uh, or be a scout, but I wasn't like compelled to be a coach when I was a player. Um, mm -hmm. it's, and it's something that, that came about. I was Coaching high school baseball and high school basketball as an assistant on a volunteer basis and was trying to do the real estate thing. Um, not too many people want to make the most important financial decision of their lives with a 22, 23-year-old kid, so that didn't work out too great. <laughs> and uh, and I uh, got a uh, got a call from Coach Beretti one day that his buddy Raf Serrato was looking for a pitching coach at the University of New Haven, a D2 school in uh, Connecticut. And what with the real estate industry and how that was going, I was like, yeah, I'm in. I'll do whatever. I, I want to get back. I want to get back in. Uh, and I missed it. Um, so that's how I st started out at New Haven um, was as a volunteer pitching coach. Um, and Raphael Serrato and Frank Vieira, 
um, the head coach at the time were the guys who gave me my first gig and opportunity, which, you know, you take it for granted sometimes, but it's tough to get that first job uh, in yeah. baseball. And, and all too often it's, you know, it's a job for no pay, no pension, and you have to find another way to support yourself. Uh, which, you know, I substitute taught and lived at home um, while I was uh, coaching at New Haven. So that's how I got my start. Um, so tell me a little bit about, because I'm always curious. So when you obviously get a new job, you know, you have to get trained or this and that. But as a pitching coach, like no one's going to say, hey, here's how you become a pitching coach. Like they just expect you to do that job. So when you suddenly had your first coaching job after being a player your whole life, like, what did you do? You show up to school and you're like, all right, I'm the pitching guy. I have to get all these pitchers to, you know, like be good at pitching. Uh, like, do you sit, did you sit down and just make a manual? Did you like, what, did, what does a person do when they're a brand new coach? I think what you do when you're a brand new coach is you rely on what you knew as a player and what your coaches before told you. And that's where everybody starts um, as a coach is you rely on your playing experience. Mine was pretty limited. Um, I was a young coach, which means not that good a player. Um, and you rely on what you learn from your coaches. So, and, and after that point, I think if you want to develop and keep getting better, you start, you have to learn from your pitchers uh, and your experiences with your pitchers and a lot a lot of times early on, it's, you know, trials, um, experimentation, see if this works. Let's see if this works. What's the pitcher's feedback? You know, that'll, that helps out a lot once you start to realize that it's, it's, as you get older, it's less and less about your experience and more about what works and feedback you get from your pitchers. So, it's it's tough early. Like, you know, I look back at what I was doing with pitchers when I was 24, 25, and some things that I didn't, you know, I wasn't wasn't the best version uh, of myself. And, you know, for better or worse, in five years from now, hopefully I look back and say, find things that we're, we're teaching and pushing right now that, you know, we've improved upon or changed our mind on. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's tough to get out of that that shell. And I was actually listening to a, an audiobook last night, and the guy was talking about as far as like it was a, it's a book about finances and like wealth and like investments, all this stuff, different stuff. And he was talking about people's clothes, and he said how it's interesting that people will often get stuck in a time period with their clothing because that was how maybe that was like the best period of time in their life or where they felt like they were the most important. Um, so he just mentioned a bunch of different people. Like, you know, this is maybe why, you know, this guy who was a really successful banker in the eighties and he wore these type of weird suits and 20 years later, he's like not really evolving with the times and he's not really adapting to new technology or whatever it is, but he's still wearing those suits because that to him was like his golden era. And I think a lot of coaches probably fall prey to that too, where they did certain things as a player. Like maybe they were, you know, highly successful at some point in their playing or coaching career. And then maybe they just get bogged down teaching the same things that they, you know, did at their best or, or did right. played. And I think it can be probably difficult to, uh, to move on and to, and to challenge your own ideas and, 
I know it for me personally, it sometimes just feels feels awkward when you're like, yeah, so everything I've been doing was kind of wrong. So <laughs> how do yeah. I how do I move on and uh, change without anyone knowing? <laughs> you know. Yeah, it requires some uh, some pride swallowing and reduced ego. Uh, no question, and you know, I th- there there's certainly value in you know what a coach used to do as a player like that experience is important um i don't want to take away from um you know using experience as a player to help you as a coach because there's there's something to be said for that but like you said that it's it's a must that you you continue to grow and evolve and um make sure you're just getting better every year you know, I don't want to be teaching the same things five, ten years from now, or maybe the same things but framed better. Um, version number three and four of the same idea that gets more buy-in, um, that more people understand quicker. That's mm-hmm. that's my hope. Yeah. So tell me a little bit. So your next gig after New Haven was Columbia, and that's interesting mm-hmm. to me because that's Ivy League, obviously. So you have some incredible mm-hmm. players, obviously, and who are just, you know, probably brilliant minds and exceptional students. Um, mm-hmm. t- just tell me a little bit about what it's like to be a, an Ivy League baseball player. Well, I wasn't a player there, so I can't speak from that uh, lens. But uh, having been there for eight years, um, it's a very special place, really, um, uh, to, to play baseball. Because it's high-level baseball. It's Division One baseball. Um but it's top 10 type schools in the, in the nation. And there's just a small amount of uh, kids in this country who can really read and write and really play. Yeah. Um, So it's just, it's neat to be around uh, that type of player and person. And, um, you know, when I, the parents, not, I have kids now and, I think about these parents, they must be so proud of their kids who are uh, athletes at an Ivy League school. It's like, it's cliched to say, but best of both worlds. Uh, It really is. So, you know, if I ever get a cousin or a nephew or whoever asking me for counsel on choosing schools, I'm like, if you get a chance to go to an Ivy League school and play a sport, do that. I mean, that's, you know, the odds of playing professionally and having a career where you don't have to work afterwards, I mean, we know what the odds are. So Crazy slim. To get, a, to get a good degree that lasts you your lifetime, I mean, it's just super valuable. So, but I, I loved working with those, with those players and the staff and the people at that university uh, was, was really fun and um, you know, try not to take it for granted. Like the kids you're working with, they're pretty impressive people in general. And, you know, and if you spend enough time in one place, you can always start to take things for granted. But I would always try to remember that, like, Hey, these are, these are special kids. They're really good at baseball and they're really smart, bright people who have really, uh, good future ahead of them. Yeah. And so then you went on to Duke, and so mm-hmm. huge, huge step down to Duke. No, just kidding. I mean, you had <laughs> incredible academic schools the whole way. 
Same um, same type of kid, same type yeah. of really special uh, student athlete and kid to work with. The same, uh, but you know, in the ACC, so you you're up in the up in the ante there on the level of baseball. Um, you know, Duke's a it's an awesome school in its own right, on the same level as Ivy schools. You know. Mm-hmm. So you coached a lot of great players, obviously throughout your time. What were some of the commonalities? that you could identify between some of the higher performers whether it's you know like a an attitude thing like a character thing like a work ethic like what what would you say that united some of the best college players that you coached over the years uh namely good sliders gonna, <laughs> <laughs> just, just kidding uh kind of um commonalities uh i think just a passion and joy for the game that comes from a good place I think that uh is a common theme you find in guys who 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 play after college um you know loving the game and taking joy in pitching uh for itself in and of itself you know not doing it because it gets you this or gets you that or because mom or dad wanted you to do it um I think that's a common theme you see with guys who who are the best and go on to play afterwards. Um, you know, I said sliders before, but obviously this, the talent level is uh, really important, and you can't you can't play uh, at the highest levels without the talent, the big fastball, the good secondary pitches, the command, which we all work on um, every day. Um, but you know, some of it. Um, comes down to your talent level as well. Yeah, um, for sure. So, so how do you uh, how do you classify yourself as a coach? So, you know, obviously you continue to progress up the ladder. You know, from Division two school to you know a couple highly highly ranked Division one schools, and then obviously we'll we'll talk about your pro days now. Um, so you continue to excel as a coach. I mean, you've got some impressive numbers with your your teams strikeout numbers their rankings nationally and strikeout to walk ratio with columbia and, and you know, with duke so you know you made big overhauls to to everywhere you pretty much set foot um but like what kind of coach are you like a high energy guy you a low energy guy you just like a throw some snark out there a kind of guy you know, <laughs> go out there and grab him by the collar on the mound kind of guy like tell me who people <laughs> um that's a big question, dude. Um, Listen, let's bro, see. I'm what type of coach are you? I, uh, I try to treat players and coaches how I'd want to be treated. Um, I guess that's a little uh, corny, but... Um, so you're the Jesus of I coaches. Was, what's that? You're the Jesus of coaches. <laughs> I am not saying that uh, in any stretch. Let the record show that you did not say that. <laughs> All right. Um, no, I, I think uh, I think if you if you come from a good place and like we were just talking about with who, who advances as players, uh, you know, coming from a good place comes from within, comes internally. Like I think um, I want to help guys get better. I want to help coaches get better. I want to help players get better. Um, and it kind it. it so long as it's genuine and comes from a good place, I think players dig that. Um, 
You know, I think that's very important. It's, it's not the content of the message. It's, it's more about the presentation of the content um, that, gets, that gets you buy-in from players. It allows you to form relationships uh, with players and staff. And so it's a, it was a big question. I'm going to give you a broad big answer um, without specifics, but um, I do feel like that's the building block. Okay. So if I'm, I'm hearing you correctly, it's, it's, it's a lot about how you relate to guys and just, you know, forming those relationships and, and how you can kind of get your message across. Like you think like that's kind of like the bigger, am I kind of hearing you right? Yeah. I mean, if, if you don't have trust from the player, if you don't have a relationship with the player, the info doesn't matter. Um, and that's, it's important to always realize because you can have the best ideas and, and it can all be vetted and corroborated by science and data. But if you don't have, um, a good way to deliver that message, uh, then it, it won't get to the player the way you want it to. So, you know, that's super important in, in coaching, uh, is relationships and having trust in order to be able to relay the information that you want to get to the player. That's huge. Gotcha. So speaking of data, um, obviously like baseball is changing at all levels and you know, I know in the minor leagues, especially they need guys who can start to relay and, and sort through that data and start to kind of unite analytics departments with players, with coaches and get everyone speaking a similar language and buy in with the front office. So, um, did you start to do any of the, the higher tech stuff uh, towards your tail end at Duke, and 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 has that sort of helped you as you entered uh, the Twins? Uh, no doubt, yes. Um, so we were uh, uh, at Duke. We had Repsoto machines when they were still in uh, like the beta testing phase. So okay. Repsoto gave gave these machines to us at Duke, Clemson. I think South Carolina had some. Um, but there were like four or five colleges that had rep soda machines. So I was very fortunate in that I got to play around with this techie stuff um, before it was available to the public. And, you know, I learned it by trial and experimentation. Um, so, yeah, we had rep soda machines pretty early on at Duke. And then um, at Duke, we got a TrackMan machine installed um, my last I don't know, six months to a year there, we had TrackMan. So I actually got more comfortable and familiar with Rapsodo before TrackMan, as it were. Um, but by the time I left there, we had both. So I had some, some familiarity um, with how to take that info and, and use it in game planning, pitch calling, um, identifying pitcher strengths. Um, so, yeah. So take me through the, the track man a little bit. So obviously for you listening, if you don't know what a Rapsodo is, Rapsodo is uh, it's a it's a pretty innovative company. They have a little a smaller device. It's more portable. You can kind of put it on a tripod, and it uh, it basically just takes uh, images right of, of the ball flight. It does, and it, and it uh, reads the velocity, reads the spin axis. It gives you a bunch of different readouts of exactly what the ball is doing in space. So you can say, hey, that slider wasn't as as tight, or however you'd want to say it in baseball mm -hmm. slang um based yeah. on the spin data the spin axis you know the spin rate all that stuff 
Uh, and then TrackMan is like the way more expensive, bigger, more powerful version of that. Uh, is, is About that 40 a, Gs, a, yeah. An inaccurate um, way to describe it. So how, do, how does the format, like I've seen a Rapsodo, uh, we had it actually demoed twice in our, facil our facility here. The Rapsodo people came out here and Alan Nathan, who has advised with them, he's one of the... He's a U of I professor, and he's like one of the big physics of baseball experts in the world. He's right down the street from us. Um, so they came up here twice, so I'm a little familiar with the Rapsodo. But how does the, the readout and TrackMan, like what does that look like when you get all that data? How do you like get into a usable format? Do they give you an Excel sheet? Is it like a – like what is, how does that get into your hands? All right, so we're lucky enough to have TrackMan data um, – filtered, scrubbed, and cleaned um, in-house, and it shows up in our in-house software program that it's, uh, you don't have to spend a, any time in Excel uh, looking at, at different pitches. So that's um, a huge, huge advantage. A lot of teams uh, in pro football have similar programs, but uh, can, you, so can you elaborate track, on that a little bit for me? Because I personally don't know, but what does that mean to scrub, clean, uh, Lysol your data? Uh, so I guess, uh, and there's other, there's other like programs that like PitchGrader is a program um, that takes the TrackMan info. It makes it look better. It puts it in a, um, it makes it visually pleasing. So instead of saying this guy's, uh, vertically induced break is X and just to see a number, you know, it can show up on a movement plot um, where you can see it um, as a plotted pitch um, okay. as opposed to just, as opposed to just a, a negative 10.5. Gotcha. Um, and that's what rep Soto, you know, that's what you get on a rep Soto uh, reading or a bullpen, you stand, you got the iPad and you can see, um, it'll show you, uh, among other things, where the pitch moved based on the spin. Okay, follow-up question. How many Rapsodos did you destroy while at Duke? Because one of my big concerns when they did <laughs> that, and I'm, I was like, look, this thing's cool, uh, but, like, we have kids that will throw a ball in, like, literally every nook and cranny of our cage i mean they'll throw a slider 12 feet high behind a batter's head um so i'm like i'll give this two months before it gets hit square in the camera and is destroyed forever um did you guys have any problems with that um yeah early on uh you have to worry about uh you know miss miss fire pitches don't read well so that's something that um will frustrate you if you got a guy who doesn't know where the ball's going and he's spraying it all over the place. Uh, you won't get accurate reads. It'll record the velo, but it won't record the spin. Um, uh, when we first had the, the machine, it didn't come with like a protective box. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I was worried that, you know, if, if you had a bad misfire, something sail on you or guys playing catch on the line, while someone's throwing a pen and now uh, it gets hit, it, it could have easily broken. Nothing ever happened uh, where we had a damaged device or anything. Um, it was a little little wonky early on. It was, you know, when, when we first got it, 
you know, we couldn't use it like if it was too bright. Like it had to be like a partially cloudy or cloudy day, and it took too long. Uh, the wireless uh, function took like 15 to 20 seconds to show the reading on the screen. So dude would throw a pitch and it would just be thinking and waiting and waiting and waiting. And we're trying to throw a bullpen and we got two hours or whatever we got for this indie period. And we're trying to do rep Soto pens, but the thing keeps thinking. Uh, so early on wasn't ideal. Um, but it got way better and to the point now where, uh, you know, there's no, there's no time impediments based on the, the, the wireless function not working and you can use it in the sun and in the shade. <laughs> so we will pitch in the shade. Yeah. Was that from, uh, from, from 300? <laughs> yeah. You know, you know that scene where like, he's like, well, Xerxes army, they have so many archers. Like, then we will fight in the shade. I think that's how I picture you guys at Duke <laughs> with your raps of those. Um, yeah. and so let's talk about your jump in a pro ball. So we'll get back to the technology, but just personnel wise, just like procedurally, uh, I mean, was it a big change going from the college game to the pro game? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, it's, the, the, the scope is much larger now. Like, you know, we have a hundred some odd pitchers um, used, used to having 16 to 18 pitchers. So that's a pretty big uh, increase in the number of overall pitchers. Um, you know, uh, staff, you know, job as a coordinator is more to manage your staff than it is the players. That's not to say you can't work with players one-on-one -on -one, uh, and have a direct impact that way. But, I'm not with Cedar Rapids or Rochester uh, for, you know, more than two or three series a year. So um, I think the best, the best coordinators, you know, I'm talking like I'm an expert. I've done it for a year, <laughs> but I think uh, you get the most out of your players uh, if you, if you take the, the lens of work, you need to work with your coaches first and foremost. Those are your people. Um, those are the guys you got to be in touch with on a regular basis and being a sounding board for them and, and helping them out when they have questions or, or issues with certain guys. So, um, so that, that's the biggest difference really is that, you know, in college you have a staff of 16 to 18 guys. You're working with your, your pitchers directly every day um and then on the pro side it's because of the, the 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 numbers you know you work with as a coordinator at least you work with coaches um just as much if not more than individual players one-on-one -on -one. okay so if you were if i was uh you were interviewing me to be your replacement as pitching coordinator for the twins how would you describe the job to me if I said, I don't know anything about it, Pete, tell me what it's like. Okay. Uh, good question. Cause I don't know um, what it's like. I'm, I'm curious. All right. So I think it's, uh, it's equal parts, uh, logistics, um, and equal parts performance. And sometimes one will take more of your time one week and another will take more of your time another week. Um, and by that on the logistics side, uh, I mean, there's obviously many levels 
uh, in a minor league, in a minor league, or a, a big league organization. And there's a lot of shuffling and shifting around that needs to happen throughout the year. Guy gets hurt, got to put him on the DL. Someone from low A needs to come up to uh, replace him on the roster in Fort Myers. Um, you know, there, and there's things like that that happen almost every day. Um, not necessarily due to injury, but maybe a promotion. Maybe a guy's ready to make make the jump um, to the next level. We have to promote him. Well, who takes his spot? So there's there's always uh, shuffling um, back and forth between levels, um, you know. And there's sometimes play 13 innings in uh, Fort Myers, 13 inning game, use four pen arms. Tomorrow we only have two available. I don't like to go into any game with only two pen arms available, especially if the starter has a short start, then you're screwed. So, um, so monitoring that in season, um, is a, is an important part of the job. Uh, takes, takes time, takes organization, uh, just to make sure you're covered every night. Um, and to kind of answer your uh, question, your earlier question, that's a big difference between the college and pro side is that there's games every day. Yeah. And you have 13 arms. So in college, you play five games a week at most, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Tuesday, Wednesday. It's five at most. And you have more than 13 arms. You typically have 16 to 18. Um, so there's never an issue in college of like, we got to cover this game. We don't have enough pitchers to get through this midweek game. Well, hopefully, hopefully not, but yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, getting off on a tangent logistics and then the performance side is, you know, how are we helping guys get better? How are we helping this guy's breaking ball? How are we helping this guy's uh, fastball strike rates, miss percentage? Um, what are we doing to increase sync? What are we doing to improve carry? What are we doing to help a guy uh, get better at holding the ball. Um, or maybe he's thrown two pick throws down the right field line in the past week. Like any, anything on the field related to help players, that's, you know, the other part of the job. Um, so I guess so that's a, like, a – Yeah, so ahead. it sounds like you sort of monitor the whole organization in the minor leagues and you look for problems both from like – the lineup side from who's available on the pen side, what guys are doing, and then any potential issues. So how does that get is, – does that seem like a fair assessment? So you're just like an air traffic controller um, as yeah, well as making, I mean, sure, it, making sure the planes are, are you know, up to par and, that's and, part and of it. capable of flying? No doubt. That is definitely part of it um, in season and, and definitely part of the day-to-day um, is just – roster management um, and making sure we got uh, enough guys to cover innings every day. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a big part of it. You know, and then you get rain outs, right? You get like or Rochester yeah. or get snow out or cold, cold it out. If that's a word or a term. Um, well, what does that mean? It means double headers coming up somewhere down the line. And uh, you know, we have to fly someone in, uh, to cover doubleheader, can we do one of the one of those games with the bullpen? Kind of asking your bullpen to do a lot to cover a whole game. Um, so luckily, uh, we did. We have doubleheaders. Um, we do two sevens, which you know I had no idea 
that that was the case, uh, that that happened in minor league baseball. But yeah. so that helps us out. If we have double headers, if we get rain on Tuesday, we get a double header Wednesday. Uh, we won't play two nines the next day. We'll play two sevens. Uh, so that's uh, helps us with the pitching a little bit. Yeah, that's a big that's a big thing because I know a guy only played indie ball. And when we would have, you know, we didn't have any replacements ever coming in. Like we, our, our team was just our team. So when we did get hurt by rainouts or hurt by a couple starters not going deep, and then we had a double header, two nines is like the longest day of your life. Number one, and, <laughs> and if your starters are, are down, you know, you got eight bullpen innings if they each go five each. Like it's just it, it'll crush you, and then you just can't recover as a independent team where no one's going to help you. So yeah, how, I, how, how do you do that where? Like, you've been talking about logistics a lot, but obviously, like, you're not going to know necessarily that you need someone else until the night of. So, you know, it's 10 o'clock, the game just ends, they Mm -hmm. just destroy their bullpen, and the coach calls, he says, hey, Pete, like, we only have two arms tomorrow. How do you get a guy there by game time the next day? Like, how does that work? Oh, yeah, we have uh, a pretty good system in place. We have uh, a travel coordinator, a stud, and... uh, gets things done in short order and you know it's sometimes he's getting there uh during bp the next day and had to take a flight where he connected uh and sat for three hours and it's not ideal you know for the pitcher sometimes uh i can remember a couple times uh we had a guy come pitch for us in triple a in durham and I don't know, he maybe got two hours of sleep because we didn't know we were going to need him until really late. And I think they were getting back from a road trip. And, you know, the guy shows up on two hours of sleep and throws a gem. And that's something that, you know, people sitting in the stands, um, you know, didn't know. You know yeah. Nobody knew that. And I'm in the dugout watching this guy saying, this guy is on fumes right now and he's dealing. This is impressive. Well, so it's tough. Like it's tough. Monsters. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're traveling during the season. So, like, tell me about your travel schedule. Like, where where would we find Pete on, you know, any given weekend? So All right. So uh, I do I do sit in the dugout. I also like to get behind the dish, too. Um, it depends. There's value to sitting in the dugout and – you know, talking to your pitching coaches in the dugout and getting a feel for the environment in the dugout and what's being talked about in between innings between pitcher and catcher. And, um, and then there's value in sitting behind the dish, too, and, and getting to see – you can see, you know, ball flight better. You can see location better. You can see – there's a lot of things you can see better from behind the dish. Um, yeah. But I go back and forth uh, when I'm at affiliates between the dugout and uh, in the stands. And it just depends on the guy who's throwing that night what I might want to see. Um, but uh, to answer the first part of your question, um, I go out and visit all of our affiliates. Um, we, we have uh, another pitching coordinator, J.P. Martinez, um, who uh, also goes out to all the other affiliates. I guess we're kind of unique in the sense that we don't do upper level and lower level. In other words, there's a lot of um, big league clubs with two coordinators, and one of them will be in A ball on down, and one of them will be uh, high A on up or double A and triple A. 
Um, we don't do it that way. We we'll both go out to all affiliates plus the plus the Dominican. So that's uh, seven spots more or less for me between AAA in Rochester, Double A's in Pensacola this year. It was Chattanooga last year. Fort Myers for High A, Cedar Rapids um, in the Midwest League, Elizabethton in the Appy League, GCL rookie ball, and uh, our Dominican. Uh, Academy uh, for the DSL and the DIL, which is the instructional league uh, in the fall where I, I went down there for a week in November. So there's seven spots you'll find me traveling to uh, throughout, throughout the year. Gotcha. And are you, are you writing reports like a scout would, or is this like, it just like needs to go into, into your brain? Like, do you report? I will. I do. I write up, I write somebody? notes. Yeah, yeah, I write notes after every visit I take, and um, you know, player-wise, staff-wise, um, I share those notes with the pitching coaches after I visit, and all of it is uh, things that we'll have talked about on the visit. But it's just it's a way for me to organize my thoughts afterwards and to commit it better to memory if I write it down, just a paragraph on each guy I saw pitch. Um, and it's good to look at the next time I go, just as a refresher. Okay, we did this drill in the bullpen last time with, with this guy. Let's see if it's showing up in terms of game results or pitch quality on my next visit. Um, so I think, yeah, I do write notes down after every visit. And I, I do it more for myself to, you know, to help commit it to memory better. Um, but it's also good to just uh, send a cap on the, the five-day visit or whatever it was with the pitching coaches. Um, so I think it accomplishes a couple of things, um, writing up a little blurb uh, after the visits, yeah. Yeah. Um, not On a non-baseball note, um, what do you do to – streamline like all this stuff is there like certain software that you like are there like little note-taking apps that you're a fan of because i use a ton of technology like on my phone on my computer um also what do you uh what, what's your travel kit like because you're traveling a ton uh what do you do to get through an airport faster more efficient what do you what's 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 your what's your kit what do i do to get through an airport faster I mean, you have like the hello kitty Sick. luggage set or like what do you got <laughs> wildly enough as much as I have to get in airplanes, I don't have TSA pre-check, which is silly. It's ridiculous. Uh, the, reason, the reason why I don't have it is that Raleigh-Durham, the airport, is a gem of an airport, and I never wait in security for more than five minutes. Sure as hell, now that I've said that, next time I go to the airport, I'll wait for an hour. Uh, really bad jinx. Uh, but... I don't, I don't have the, the, the TSA pre-check and it's speaking of, uh, helping, uh, to stay organized. My notes section on my phone, I use that frequently for reminders to organize thoughts. That's one of the many things on one of those notes pages, get TSA pre-checked, but it hasn't made it to like the top 20 list, uh, recently so maybe over the next couple of weeks i'll try to get it but uh maybe santa's listening perhaps i got that i think two years ago it's like my favorite thing in the world 
especially as, as much as you fly, I mean, it, it ends up, it's like 85 bucks for five years. And yeah, there's some airports that you just cruise through anyway. But then I think for me, the thing I like about it is uh, that you always know that you will get through security in 10 minutes or less. So you can just plan out your airport time better. Like there's no, there's no surprises, you know, like, you know, Durham's pretty great, but you know, you could be in Vegas or you could be, yeah, in, like, I could be anywhere. And, I, and, and you have no idea how long it could take. So you have to be like extra cautious and waste time sometimes. That's yeah, for it's me si- where, like, silly rationale on my part. Like, cause only half the time I can be assured of minimal weight. Yeah. Minimal wait time. So that's just a misstep on my part. Um, and I need to get on that. And, I was just uh, picturing, uh, have you ever seen this movie in into the air with George Clooney? I've not seen that movie. It's, uh, it wasn't like a super big one, but he was like this, uh, this business professional who fires people for a living. So companies hire him to go over and like be an assassin and lay off people for a day. But anyway, he's like in the air for like 300 days a year. And they're just like, one of the opening scenes is him like going through the airport and just, you know, he's got everything perfect. He just like takes off his shoes while he's walking, puts him in this little spot and his suitcase is real high tag. And he's just like, he's so streamlined with the, uh, with, you know, the airport, the airport process. Yeah. Yeah. So I was curious if you had any little things that you did that you're like, I figured this out. It saves me 1.6 minutes. Yeah, uh, one thing, I, I wrote this down the other day, so I thought it was funny. Um, but if you're sitting in the back of the plane and the, and, the, and the plane comes to a dead stop and the seatbelt sign comes off, I feel like everybody in the back immediately stands up as if we're going somewhere in the near future. I've learned to finish the next two chapters in my book <laughs> before standing up to get into the aisle to grab my carry-on bag because it takes a long time for the first 130 people to get off the plane. So uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's a that's a consider that an airplane uh, travel tip. Okay, and these I'll travel finish, tips. Finish. Finish the, the finish the chapter. Finish what you're doing. You don't need to rush up as soon as the, the pilot takes off the uh, fastened seatbelt sign. Because then you just end up waiting, looking at looking at disgruntled, tired people until you <laughs> or, get off, right? Or you do the, especially if you're like at the uh, the window seat, you just end up standing there while leaning your head at a 90 degree angle, and then you yeah, end up walking exactly. off the plane with borderline scoliosis. So. Exactly. So, what have you been reading? Give me, uh, give me a couple of recent recent books. Uh, reading right now, um, finishing up a book called "On Mental Toughness." It's a Harvard Business Review uh, compilation of essays on resiliency um, and mental toughness. So. That's a good one. It's kind of a, it's geared towards corporate world a little bit, which annoys me a little bit, a little bit, but the message is good. So anytime I see the the word corporate athlete in this book, which appears more than once, unfortunately, I just like Mm. sub out in my mind picture um, because all the messages are the same. It's like, how do we respond from a, a traumatic Work experience, uh, work experience, or 
a, a bad presentation or getting fired or, you know, the, the ability to uh, tap into your, your stoic side and be able to just move on to the next thing. What's important now? What's, what's the next thing in front of me? What can I do today? Even though I got this feeling in my gut, even though I'm pitching terribly the last two weeks, you know, who cares? What can I do today? What's important now? So that's one of the messages of the book, which we've all heard in coaching and, and preach as coaches. Um, so it's just a, it's a book that I, I've uh, really taken to, and I like it. I accept the whole corporate athlete word that they, <laughs> that they use all the time. I don't know if I don't know if I accept that, but I, I, get it. <laughs> right. I get it. Yeah. We can't all be athletes, you know, and it's, yeah, but I, I think there's a lot of lessons that go both ways, you know, from the corporate world to the athletics world, from the athletics world to the corporate world for sure. Well, it's funny cause they, they use, uh, the authors in the book use sports examples to say, Hey, they do this in tennis. You should do this in your, in your own job, uh, in your own life. Or, hey, they, they do this in golf. PGA golfers do this to recover from a bad round. This is what you can do uh, to have a, a good presentation next time you have to give a presentation for your boss. Um, so it's all good, though, because, you know, you can learn. I love, love to learn from other sports, uh, be it uh, approach mentally above the neck or, you know, even mechanical stuff. You know, if you look at uh, javelin throwers or tennis serves or um, anything in track and field, you can you can find something that parallels well with baseball. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a good book. I recommend. Highly recommend. It's kind of dense. It gets a little nerdy at times, uh, but I recommend it. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll see if I can find it. I'll put it in the, uh, the show notes if I can in the description. Um, so okay. tell me what else you've got in your, uh, so like, you know, you've talked about, uh, your progression as a, as a, as a player, then a coach, and obviously you continue to learn and impress people. That's how you continue to climb the ladder. Um, what's, what's part of your, you know, all the players have their off season training, their, their in season workouts, their, their process, right? Like what is your process to one day? get where you wherever it is that you want to go <laughs> um that's just learning man it's getting it's trying to get better trying to get a little better next year how can i say this a little bit better next year what am i teaching right now that's not entirely accurate um you know there's always a, a little bit of imposter complex is good um too much is bad <laughs> but a little bit, a little bit is good. Um, just to, just to check yourself, just to make sure that you're, you're giving the best info and the best advice and coaching you can, uh, every year. Um, that's important to me. And then in the off season, you know, something like last week, I went to the Texas baseball ranch, uh, Ron Wolforth puts on an event, uh, every year, um, where he invites, uh, speakers to come talk about pitching and this past year or last weekend Brent Strom and Derek Johnson spoke at it Dewey Robinson the Tampa Bay 
Rays pitching coordinator spoke at it. So attending uh, events like that are important in the off season for me. I will take something from these off season clinics every year. I'll pick up something and put that into my own uh, pitching coaching strategy style, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's, that's important. I've been really lucky in every place I've worked uh, so far, like the, the administration, the head coach or whoever, the front office has encouraged it, paid for it. Um, and that, that's, I, I don't take that lightly. I, I value that. Um, the first one I went to was in at Mohegan Sun, the World Baseball Coaches uh, Clinic or Convention or whatever they call it. Um, I can remember, so I was sitting in the car with Raf, the head coach at New Haven at the time, and uh, we're driving there. It's an hour drive. Uh, and I remember thinking, damn, this is awesome. This, he's paying for me to go to a baseball convention where people are going to talk for three days about how to get better at coaching. And someone's paying for it for me. I thought that was, I thought that was awesome. Um, you know, super green, a little naive at the time, but I do, I still feel the same way. Um, whenever my employers paid for me to go to get better, it's like, I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. So are you a podcast guy in addition to that? Or are you uh, like, what do you do when you can't make it to a clinic? Yeah, I'm a podcast guy. Um, Tim Ferriss podcasts are pretty good. Freakonomics radio podcasts, I love. Um, so neither of those are baseball related, but. Um, well, there was one, you probably caught it, uh, that we had our, our kids in our organization listen to. It was about, I think it was a two-parter. It had a ton of different pro athletes talking about things that help separate them from others. Like Mark Deshera was in it. Um, yes. Sean Johnson. Did you hear that episode? Like a lot of really good insight from a lot of athletes. I did. I was mowing the lawn when I listened to that. That's what I, <laughs> that's what I do to be efficient. Uh, is, let me try to listen to a podcast while I'm mowing the lawn. I feel good after I do both of those things because that's time efficiency. Um, but I do remember listening to that a couple months ago uh, while mowing the lawn. Yeah. Yeah, I'm an audiobooker myself. Uh, I don't know if I've physically, I've only physically read a handful of books in the last year, but audiobooks help me because I can get 10 minutes going to and from the grocery store, half an hour, no here, hour there. That's, that's been my thing. Um, and I'm sorry, no a little, little more into podcasts now, but you know, you got a guy like me, and I'm like, who is this Dan dude? Just rambling off, turn it off. <laughs> you know, so I try to find <laughs> something that's going somewhere. Uh, rather than some some guy who's just going to talk about TSA pre-check for an hour, you know. Yeah, better watch the the New York uh, New York Times just came out with a I don't know if it was an op-ed or whatever, but uh, someone came out with something that you don't process or internalize audio books as much as you do if you read it, which is big hit to the audible industry, the audio book industry. I just saw it on my Twitter feed yesterday. It's like. You remember 83% of what you actually read in writing, and you only remember 50-something percent of what you hear on an audio book. And I was like, dang, if I was a president of Audible, I'd be pissed right now. Um, See, I but yeah, I, 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 I still use it just the same because, uh, you know, 
can't always sit down and read a book. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to re I'm going to find that study because here's my thing with every book that I finish, I feel like I, I learned, I remember three things. Like where did the 80,000 words go? Like you can't. So when they're saying you remember 83% of a, of a written, of a, you know, a written read book. Yeah. What, like, right. what does that mean? I, re I like, I remembered 83,000 words out of a hundred thousand. So like, totally like, don't they? know. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. I, matter of fact, I didn't even read the whole uh, piece. I just <laughs> was, saw, was I just it, saw it was an audio the form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good joke. Uh, I go. just saw like the the uh, the title and the the subject line, and that's all I saw. Uh, so, well, I gotta it, dive into it. I gotta read it, but I saw that and I was like, uh oh, Audible's yeah. not gonna be happy. And I get it. I mean, at a cursory glance, like it, it makes sense. Like when I'm listening to an audiobook, I'm driving a vehicle, so you know, some part of my brain has to be occupied like not for processing book material. And then because you're not physically staring at words, you can kind of get lost in your thoughts, which for me, I think is kind of a positive because I do that anyway. But right. and, and one of the things I was talking to one of, one of my buddies about is that when I read a real book, like my mind just is a, I have a constant wandering mind, which I think is why like I'm creative in some things. Like I don't think it's a bad quality, but it's a quality. Like I have to control it yeah. to an extent. So when I'm reading a book, I'll just be like flipping pages and I'll be like, wait, I didn't read any of the last 12 pages. <laughs> Let's go back. Yeah. Happens uh, to me whereas, too, man. Yeah. Whereas with an audiobook, it just kept going. And then you're like, okay, uh, I like was kind of tuned in, kind of not. But then you finish the book and you, you feel like you got most of it. So I, I can definitely see where like, yeah, those 10 minutes where I spaced out because I was dreaming about sea turtles or whatever. Uh, those are, <laughs> those are gone forever. Um, and I'm not going to like go back and rewind all of it. I do rewind sometimes, but, uh, but it, it, my overall point is like, even then when you read a hundred thousand word book or a 10 hour audio book, how much of it does your brain really like store anyway? So it's, I, I'm just curious to read that study more than anything. So yeah, check it out. I'll have, yeah. to, I'll have to read the, the whole thing in full. The bottom line is this, if, Audio books better than no book, right? That's, like, that's so. the other thing, yeah. Because you can't read a, a physical book while you're driving in your car or doing all those mowing your lawn. So if you get 53% of something, it's better than 83%. Better than of nothing, book. right. Yeah. And it's like, I, I feel like the only time I have to read uh, is when I'm actually in an airplane and don't get the Wi-Fi. And I like have to coach myself that don't get the Wi-Fi because that will force you to read. Yeah. Um, so... Well, as we wrap up here, do you have any good stories that, uh, you, like, you look back as really fond memories of your time at, you know, well, as a college coach or as a player, as a uh, now as a coordinator? Anything that really sticks out that be? Uh, I'm just great. I'm not, I'm just grateful to have worked for some really good people, good baseball minds, good men. Um, you know, I, it's there's so much. There's so much luck and chance um, in anyone's career path, and uh, there's, there's just too many outside factors that help people get to where they are. So, you know, any any people I've worked for, universities I worked at, um, really uh, have helped me out. You know, uh, starting with Raf at at New Haven and uh, Coach Beretti. 
um, well, as a player, and then I've worked for him for for eight years. And uh, Coach Pod at Duke. I mean, these these guys are all super professional and really good at their jobs. So just learning from them um, and and taking taking any tips, taking any advice, uh, following those guys, the, the lead and, and using, using that to help kind of craft, uh, you know, your own style, your own voice, um, and you know, your own, your own person. So, um, Very cool. yeah. Well, you definitely, you know, one of the, I think the common themes of, of our talk today is definitely that you're a, a voracious learner. And uh, I think a lot of people sometimes forget just how much of a long-term process that is. You know, it, it's clear through looking at your bio and your progression and, and now that you're, you know, on track to potentially one day, you know, be a, a big league pitching guy. I think you're in one of the stepping stones towards that job long-term. Um, you know, and I don't know if that's your goal or not, but you're continuing to climb the ladder, you know, despite not being a guy who pitched in the major leagues. And that's definitely something that's changing in baseball, right? I know there's there's – Back in the day, right. like 20 years ago, there were never guys, you know, who didn't pitch in the majors who would then coach, you know, pro guys. So that's that's really changed a lot, hasn't it? Well, it's changed a ton. I mean, when when Derek Johnson got – he went from Vanderbilt to Cubs pitching coordinator like seven years ago approximately. That was a wild move that just – it wasn't talked about. It went under the radar. You know, I thought it should have been – on the bottom line on ESPN on the ticker uh, when that happened, just because there was zero college to pro transition. It just, it just flat out didn't happen. So when he did that, that really um, eventually opened, opened the door for some college guys to move to the pro side. You know, if he doesn't do that, if, if he says, nah, I'm good. Thanks, Theo. I'm going to stay in Nashville because I work with studs here and I love live music. Um, like, I don't, you know, I don't know if uh, any, I don't know if I get a job with the twins or Wes Johnson gets a job uh, with the twins or there's, there's a number of college guys now um, with less than stellar playing careers or no pro background playing wise that are working in the pro game now. So it started with him, man. Um, and the fact, you know, and he, he could have taken that job and um, not done, what if it didn't go well? You know, what if he, you know, it didn't turn out good and he was back in college three years later? You know, who knows what happens? Like, so he had to take that job, say yes to it, and um, be really good at his job. And when those two things happened, then I think some organization said, okay, this guy just did a great job as a coordinator and I was a big league pitching coach and uh, many people rave about him. Uh, let's, let's try to open the door, see if we can get some more, more blood in. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like that makes sense for why you're doing your thing because, you know, for a guy like him or a guy like you, you know, they stand before a guy, you know, a, a big clubhouse full of pros and major leaguers. And those guys say, well, what do you know? Like I played at a higher level than you ever did. And I think it comes back to, to what you said is that when you treat them with respect and you treat them with like people and you, you just help them to help understand, them, help them yeah, get better. Yeah. Yeah. That then they buy in like, okay, this guy, yeah, he, he was a college coach, but he really cares about me and he knows what he's talking about. And I, I feel like what he's doing is going to help me. 
So then I think that's where you guys just realize it's a shared goal, and then it doesn't matter what your background was. Correct. Yeah, I mean, you said it perfectly. Um, yeah, and I've never coached at a level that was um, at the same level I played at. I've only coached at, with players who are better, <laughs> better than the level I played at. Um, so that's kind of unique. I don't think – I think a lot of, a lot of coaches – uh, don't share that same quality, but I played Division Three baseball and started at D2, and then just uh, I climbed up some. But you know, it's kind of kind of unique, I think. Um, well, well, I'm sure you. It sounds like you didn't. You you approach that with the idea like I have to pull myself up and and be really good and like prove that I belong here and that I can do this job and. It seems like that's a commonality amongst high performers as well. Like they don't, like you said with Derek Johnson, like he got that job, and I'm sure he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill this, and I'm gonna make this work, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna work super hard and put in the hours and, and, uh, and prove that I belong here. I think every player or coach at some point, they get promoted, whatever it is, they want to immediately prove that they belong. You know, so that's, I think that's probably why lots of guys end up outperforming. Maybe like, like. You know, for me, like I was, I'm a six foot right-hander, like, you know, and yes, like, love I six did, foot right-handers underrated, you know, but they, they have to prove <laughs> every day that they're, that they belong on the field because people think they're like a second baseman, you know? Right. No doubt. And that no was doubt. what, uh, my, my previous guest last week, Dave Swanson, he was talking about Josh Tomlin from the Indians. And he's like, you know, he's the most unassuming guy. He's barely six foot and barely throws 90 but he does everything in his power to, to prove that he belongs on that field. And uh, so, yeah, so I get it. Well, hey, Pete, no, how can no, people... No replacement for that motor. No, absolutely. So how can people follow up with you if they want to follow you and stay in tune with what you're doing? Oh, shoot. I didn't know you were going to ask that. Um, you out there on the interwebs? I'm not, a big, I'm not a big Twitter guy. I'm not a big social media guy. I mean, I'm on it, but I don't, like, post. Um I'm not incognito. uh incognito is right. Um, well, here's what we can do. We can start a crowd. Is that, is that, uh, is that, uh, I don't know. It's not balanced. I take, but I don't give back to the Twitter community. <laughs> That's probably not, not right, best so, for karma. So Pete's just lurking in the shadows, ready to leap out and steal information whenever possible. <laughs> yeah. No, but what we can do is we can start a crowdfunding thing for you to get you TSA pre-check. So if you want to be involved and uh, and help Pete get through airport security at all the his his visiting uh, airports, then we can set that up. So you, you I'll do, take your it. Donation, yeah. Even a nickel will get him towards his goal. I will take it. Um, but yeah, well, hey, I, I appreciate you being on the show. I think this was a, was an awesome talk. I mean, I, I didn't know what a what a pitching coordinator does. I think people hear the term a lot. Um, I think you know what people do in pro ball what the coaches do like the day-to-day of it i think is kind of mystified and um so i appreciate you kind of telling your story today and 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 going through some of the details of it happy i could help i enjoyed it thanks dan all right well you uh have a great warm durham christmas (laughs) and we'll talk again soon (laughs) all right merry christmas talk soon all right well that about wraps it up for today i want to again thank my guest pete mackey wish him the best next year with the twins And uh, I want to thank you again for stopping in here. 
Remember, you can find this episode. You can also find video versions on YouTube. We don't have video uh, with myself and Pete today, but some of our guests, we do record this on video. But all of them are on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, YouTube, and DanBlue.com, my personal website. So thanks again, and we'll catch you here next week on Dear Baseball Gods.